our opening scriptures for today are from the book of Isaiah, our current book in which we are in an extensive sermon series, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. And then we'll also turn to Psalm 19, verse 9. So I invite you to open your copy of the Bible and read along as we begin today. Hear now God's word. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then to Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. What we need in the hour of trial and what we should seek by earnest prayer is confidence in him who knows the end from the beginning and doeth all things well. Abraham Lincoln was our quintessential American self-made man, the ultimate bootstraps story of not only success, but historical influence well beyond his own age. Most of you will know the story. Abe Lincoln grew up in the poorest of circumstances uh, with not particularly notable parents, moved around, lived in log cabins, didn't have very much formal education but he taught himself, he read voraciously growing up. He was, of course, he still is the tallest president we've ever had, believe it or not. <laughs> Even when he lived, he was towering above most of the people, not only physically, but also intellectually. He could read and quote from the Bible pretty extensively, far more than most people who would call themselves Christians. But as you may know, for much of his young life, he, he kind of remained very much on the fence with respect to faith and in particular Christianity. He would have been referred to more as a deist as he read from Jefferson and the Enlightenment and kind of went in that direction, um, 
certainly rejected the very emotional backwoods preaching and religion that his parents followed, specifically did not enlist in the church in that way. After he had studied and became a somewhat successful lawyer, he wed Mary Todd in 1842. Now, many of you will know this, that Mary Todd had a Scott Presbyterian heritage background. Uh, her grandparents and parents had helped start the first Presbyterian church in Springfield, Illinois, and she came from much higher educational and cultural background than, than Abe Lincoln did. But her inclination was actually to reject the strong, firm, Calvinist theology that was preached in the Presbyterian church. She didn't like that. She, she wanted more of an individual version. She was a little bit ahead of her time. You might say she was much more 20th or 21st century in her orientation. Eventually, she, when she became an adult, left the Presbyterian church and became an Episcopalian. And so it was that uh, the Episcopal rector in Springfield officiated the wedding of Abe and Mary Todd Lincoln. The couple had four boys over time, Robert Todd, Edward Baker, Eddie, uh, a nod to the Scott heritage, William Wallace Lincoln, and then Thomas Lincoln III, Tad. He was called Tad because when he was a baby, he wiggled all over the place and Abe, his dad, called him a tadpole, so that became his name, Tad. After Eddie died tragically at a very young age, just a few months before the third boy, Willie, was born, the Lincolns began attending the First Presbyterian Church, Mary Todd's you know, original family church, because that was the move Lincoln made when uh, the rector, Charles Dresser, was unavailable for Eddie, Eddie's funeral, the second boy after he died. Abe Lincoln reached out to the old school Presbyterian pastor in Springfield, Dr. James Smith, to lead the funeral. Now, if you know anything about the history of this church, you may know we're an old school Presbyterian church, so it's kind of interesting. You got the, the correlation here time-wise, but uh, what happened is the Lincolns then from 19, excuse me, from 1850 to 1860 until Lincoln was elected president, they attended the first Presbyterian church and Lincoln really liked the reasoned and very much Calvinist old school Presbyterian preaching of Dr. James Smith. But it was when having been elected, surprisingly elected as president of the United States in 1860 when the family moved in 1861 to Washington, D.C., Lincoln specifically chose and sought out the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church as his home congregation. As much as he had liked Smith's preaching, Lincoln was moved by and really his mind was developed and his spirit was developed through the preaching of Dr. Phineas Gurley, 
the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. It was the church that the Blairs and several other influential folks, you know, the Blair House across the street from the White House, that's that family. They were some of the key formers of the Republican Party. That's where they went. Lincoln wanted to go there, and he was moved and shaped by the preaching of Phineas Gurley. And the shaping moved to a high degree of intensity as Lincoln was taken through 1861 and the great uh, travail of the beginning of the Civil War and the huge defeats, um, the losses of the Union Army and the, the horror of what was developing as the Civil War. Moving into 1862, um, there were finally some Union victories, most notably Grant's first big win at Fort Donelson in Tennessee. Fort Henry also fell to the Union, and then New Orleans. So moving into February of 1862, there was suddenly some good news, but it was all under the shadow of what had happened within the White House. Um, the third and fourth boys, Willie and Tad, had both contracted typhoid fever, and they were both severely ill. Tad eventually recovered, only to die, by the way, a few years later after Lincoln's own death, but Willie did not. The boys had contracted the measles their first year in D.C., and, and now Willie apparently did not have the physical strength to fight off the typhoid fever from the contaminated water that served the White House with all those Union soldiers, you know, along the Potomac. Um, things were not clean in the swamp in those days. Willie, Willie, Willie Lincoln. He was, of all the four Lincoln boys, by far the most like his daddy his daddy's witty and charismatic side, blue-eyed, good-natured. He was, although you, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, there was no question about it. He was his mama's favorite, and he brought light to his daddy, and really to everyone else. He was the only Lincoln child who possessed that amiable demeanor of his father. He was the one friends called the most lovable boy we ever knew, bright, sensible, sweet-tempered, and gentle-mannered. He was, among the Lincoln boys, the one who had his father's command of the English language. He romped around the White House also, bringing along his little brother, Tad, uh, devising mischievous pranks and building a play fort in the White House. After the Battle of Ball's Bluff, Willie, just turning 11, composed a remarkably mature poetic tribute to family friend Edward Dickinson Baker. That's the one after whom the second boy, Eddie, the one who died, he was named. Um, Edward Dickinson Baker had lost his life, a close family friend. And the ode that Willie wrote as an 11-year-old appeared in Washington newspapers. But then the typhoid fever struck. 
the Lincoln's pastor, Dr. Phineas Gurley, attended in February to Willie and Tad's sick beds. While Tad recovered, the newspapers announced on February 17th that there was no hope for Willie. Phineas Gurley reported that as Willie lay dying, he said to me, Dr. Gurley, I have six $1 gold pieces in my bank over there on the mantle. Please send them to the missionaries for me. Willie participated in the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church's Youth Missionary Society, which sponsored missionaries in China at that time. His contribution of all the money he had to the Chinese missionaries just before he died was duly noted in the church records. Yesterday was the anniversary of Willie's death. Now I know on February 12th, we remember and celebrate his daddy's birthday, but yesterday was the death of Abe Lincoln's third son, beloved Willie. Upon seeing his son's death, President Lincoln exclaimed, I can't believe my, my boy is gone. And then he murmured, my poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home. I know that he's much better off in heaven, but then we loved him so. It is hard, hard to have him die. On Monday, February 24th, 1862, the wind and rain swirled outside and it seemed a fitting arrangement for that funeral in the East Room of the White House. The Washington Evening Star reported a great many friends of the family called to take a last look at the little favorite who had endeared himself to all guests of the family. His body was clothed in the usual everyday attire of youths of his age, pants, jacket, white stockings, and low shoes, the white collar and wristbands being turned over the black cloth of the jacket. His right hand held a small bouquet of flowers that was later given to his mother, who remained upstairs during the funeral. She said she just couldn't come down. Willie's plain metallic coffin bore a simple inscription, William Wallace Lincoln, born December 21, 1850, died February 20, 1862. At two o'clock that afternoon, the crowd gathered for the funeral in the East Room where the mirrors had been covered and the frames draped in black mourning crepe. Government offices throughout DC were closed that day. Cabinet secretaries filed in with generals and foreign dignitaries, members of Congress. Phineas Gurley gave the eulogy, which described Willie's precocious personality and many virtues. His pastor placed the parents' grief in the context of Abraham Lincoln's unprecedented weight of civil cares and the trials of thousands and thousands of families who were losing their beloved boys and girls too in the fight. Gurley declared that Willie was now experiencing new life with his redeemer and with the brother he had never seen. 
Then Dr. Gurley turned to those who were with him and reminded them of the importance and beauty of faith in coping with crises and with loss. He encouraged Abraham Lincoln to have faith in God's unknowable plan and counseled God's ways are not our ways. Gurley said, it is well for us and very comforting on such an occasion as this to get a clear and scriptural view of God's providence. His kingdom ruleth over all. Disease and death are God's messengers. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his direction, much less any one of the human family, for we are of far more value than the sparrows. Gurley continued, we may be sure, therefore, bereaved parents, and all the children of sorrow may be sure that their affliction has not come from the dust, nor has their trouble sprung out of the ground. And while they mourn, the Lord is saying to them, as the Lord Jesus once said to his own disciples when they were perplexed at his conduct, what I do, you know not now, but you will know hereafter. And then Gurley continued, what we need in the hour of trial and what we should seek by earnest prayer is confidence in him who knows the end from the beginning and doeth all things well. Only let us bow in his presence with a humble and teachable spirit let us be still and know that he is God. Let us acknowledge his hand and hear his voice and inquire not our will, but his will. Seek his Holy Spirit as our counselor and our guide. In his light, we will see light. By his grace, our sorrows will be sanctified. This funeral sermon, some of you will know I've referred to it previously here and um, at my pastorate in South Carolina too. One of the most influential sermons connected with the other sermons that Gurley preached, Lincoln regularly attended New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. In fact, after this funeral, he was pretty much there every Sunday for the next couple of years. This is one of the great and most influential messages in all of American history, tying us back, of course, to the faith that God gave and brought through the prophet Isaiah. Gurley, of course, is quoting from key scripture for us today, Isaiah 46, verse 10, as well as, if you remember it, from your study of the Bible, 
and or from my preaching through and our preaching through Mark's gospel last year, right? Doeth all things well. That's what those in the predominantly Gentile region of the Decapolis said when Jesus returned from Lebanon, from Tyre and Sidon. Remember that? And he comes and he's doing miracles in the Decapolis region. And the people marvel that he does all things well. Of course, Gurley also quotes from Jesus' assurance to us words that we all need to hear in times of loss and trial from Matthew 10, 28 through 30. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God alone is the judge. God alone rules. And continuing verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The message of God's sovereignty, God's providence, it sounds perhaps foreign to those of us who are so immersed in the way 21st century individualist and individually narcissistically focused people think. But it is, of course, God's message to us by his word. And if we are to begin to have any realistic view of life in the plane of eternity, we need to turn to God's word. Uh, we're going ahead and, and touching on a marker to which we will return and hopefully be able to dig into much more extensively. But once you get to Isaiah 45 and 46 and 47, you are in the midst of the prophecy developing. It's incredible that after prophesying the various judgments on nations and on Israel and on Judah, God's prophecy through Isaiah looks all the way not only to the triumph and the judgment of God brought through Babylon and the Babylonian exile and captivity, but also beyond it to judgment on Babylon and God choosing and anointing and calling unto himself a new leader, Cyrus from Persia, who will bring judgment upon and quick demolition of the Babylonian empire. So, in the midst of that message, we'll come back to this later. That is a marker, though, for you to be aware of as you look through and begin to understand what's being said in the, in the whole of Isaiah's prophecies. In, in the midst of that, and in the Lord's ongoing polemic and satire vis-a-vis -vis false religions and the false gods, including Bel and Nebo, the great gods of the Babylonian culture and empire. God says, take a look. The idols of those gods are going to be carted off and they can do nothing for you. Which false prophets 
speaking in my name, who talk about this person being established and this person not being established and then turn out to be false prophets because they're wrong, even though they go viral on the internet. God says, which false prophets and which false gods and which false religions actually told you what was going to happen hundreds of years in advance, thousands of years in advance? Who? Remember, God says, the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who bears you through times of loss and grief. I'm the one who can deliver you unto salvation. This, in fact, is, in the sequence of Isaiah, really the Lord's final appeal for Judah and the remnant of Israel to truly repent. Oh yeah, he is assuring them they will return from the exile. Jerusalem will be reestablished, but it's simply going to be physical and geographical. The real issue is where they are spiritually. And then Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and the prophecies of Isaiah move on to the true servant, the one who will redeem all those who are called truly unto himself. And ultimately the rebirth of which the resurrection and the resurrection life of which Isaiah speaks. In the midst of all this, Isaiah 45, God declares his sovereignty over all things. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me, not the false prophets, not the people who everybody has their ears tickled by and shares with each other all over the place. No, 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 don't ask them. Ask me of things to come. And you want to question me? You want to question my judgments of life and death? Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? No. No. But in the midst of his sovereign will, God assures his own of this. Romans 8.28, right? For we know that in all things, and I do mean in all things, God works together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
And further from Romans 8, of course, we know that nothing in life or in death can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. And so God says, remember the former things of old, not just the exodus, not just the way I prophesied about your exile into Babylon, but all the way back, all the way back to the beginning. That's, that's the language that's being used there. And God says, for I am God, a um, little bit of Hebrew here, El, singular for God. I'm God, there's no other. And then interestingly, Elohim, the plural for gods, which is used in the singular context in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, because we know there's only one God, but he is full in his attributes. And of course, from us, from a Christian standpoint, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am El, there's no other. I am Elohim, there's none like me. I not only know the ending before the beginning starts, I declare it, Megid. I am the preacher, I am the author. The author knows the end of the book. The author knows the end of the book and writes it, makes it happen. This is what God is saying. Do you believe? Do you believe God is at work in your life and in all history? Isaiah 41, 26 and 27. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. I told you when they were taking you down and I tell you when the good news coming back to Zion. That's what God just said. I can tell you when the bad guys are on the gates long before they ever arrive. And I can tell you when Zion will be established for Israel, my glory. That's the way Isaiah 46 ends. And then also Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you believe? Are you trusting in God's word rather than false words that tickle our immediate fancy? I wanna invite you to real faith and that faith comes through the living word, Jesus Christ himself. 
and to be assured that God is at work in history. In the aftermath of the preaching and the ongoing preaching and ministry of Phineas Gurley during that season of 1862, famously Abraham Lincoln believing that he was called by God and increasingly surprisingly to his associates beginning to refer to my God instead of divine something out there, claiming this faith in the God who was active in his life and in history, in the immediate history of the Civil War, Moving towards the Emancipation Proclamation, Abraham Lincoln famously wrote his Meditation on Divine Will in September of 1862. It was for his private journal. Uh, John Hay, one of his secretaries, later published it after Lincoln's death. Um, it really moves all the way through the second inaugural address, it, the echoes are already there in Lincoln's meditation. Lincoln writes this, the will of God prevails. In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I am almost ready to say that this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. By his mere great power, on the minds of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the union without a human contest. Yet the contest began, and having begun, he could give the final victory to either side any day. Yet the contest proceeds. And so, believing himself called of God to this purpose, Lincoln moved forward with the Emancipation Proclamation. Also remember that Gurley's sermons throughout the season, particularly his Thanksgiving sermon in 1862, you see it echoed right into the Gettysburg Address, the message of the rebirth and the possibility of rebirth of the Union. And then of course, in um, the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, March, Lincoln continues along this whole vein that God brought him to. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. It's on the verge of the close of the Civil War. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe to the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, 
that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, now this is a speech by an American president, Abraham Lincoln. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us then strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. God's word through the prophet Isaiah spoke then, is speaking now. May you hear and believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.